and thanks for joining us. I'm Jacqueline Ogilvie, Developmental Pediatrician at Children's Hospital in London, Ontario, and a member of PONDA, Physicians of Ontario Neurodevelopmental Advocacy. This is the second in a series of podcasts focusing on the approach to children with language-based learning disabilities from an advocacy perspective. I'm talking today with Nikki Jones-Dockreef, Developmental Pediatrician at Children's Treatment Network, Simcoe County, and current chair of PONDA. She's also the author of the Advocacy Toolkit for Language-Based Learning Disabilities, which has been available online since 2016. We're joined by Chris, Mr. Chris Samus, Superintendent of Program and Special Education at the Simcoe County District School Board. Mr. Samus is a passionate educator and advocate for children with special needs. Thanks you both for joining me. Hello. Hello and welcome, thanks. Nikki, let's start off by finding out what inspired you to develop the toolkit and why is this something that physicians need to know about? Thanks, Jackie. That's a great question. Um, I became inspired to develop this toolkit really from um, having seen many children in my practice who were struggling with their reading and uh, really struggling myself with knowing how to advocate for them to get evidence-based interventions. I also heard a really great talk by um, Dr. Todd Cunningham, who I think was uh, on a previous podcast, uh, talking about the evidence for good uh, intervention for kids who really struggle with their phonemic awareness and are at risk for a learning disability. And I felt this was something that needed to be available to all children in all schools, regardless of where they live or which school board they attend. And that's how I developed the advocacy toolkit. Wonderful. And before we get talking about the details of the toolkit, Chris, maybe you can help us understand a little bit about how school supports for children with learning difficulties are organized in our province. Great, thank you very much. So broadly speaking, in terms of funding and organization, there is a relationship between the Minister of Education and individual school boards. And it's important to understand that in Ontario, at least, special education is governed by legislation and and regulations through the Education Act. Although individual school boards are actually unique and what we'd consider independent corporations with the ability to set their own local policies and procedures. And a really good example of that would be an individual education plan that all school boards would have across the province, which is governed in legislation, but really is different in terms of how it's actually organized and the information within it. So while we have broad legislation and policies that come through the Ministry of Education, through the province of Ontario, there is, there is quite a bit of variation between school boards across the province. That's right, and Arthur, uh, we've certainly seen that in practice, and we, we hear that from families who've moved around the province as well. Um, are there important policies or, or education regulations that physicians should be aware of, especially as they start to learn more about advocating for children with learning difficulties? Absolutely, and, and, and I think one of the, the, the primary differences is really when physicians talk about things like diagnoses versus in a school board, we talk about exceptionalities. And it's not really meant to not sort of have that alignment between the two of them, but they really are not synonymous between the two of them. So within the ministry, within within all school boards, students can be identified, but aren't required to be identified with an exceptionality that may align with a disability in terms of a diagnosis of a disability, but quite often is a more broad category. And it's not meant to exclude anything, but it's the, really the way to be able to say, 
what would fit into that sort of that um, sort of category of exceptionality. I mean, we would say in terms of things like autism, where the diagnosis and the actual exceptionality are the same, there is a difference between when we talk about sort of language-based learning difficulties and sort of a learning disability within a school board. So, I mean, as you say, there are there are similarities, but they're not synonymous to be able to do that. So it's important that physicians understand that, you know, if a child has diabetes, we wouldn't actually then diagnose them in the school as diabetes, but we would then look and see how, how does the diabetes actually affect their ability to learn and succeed in school? So, you know, again, some, some there sometimes is a disconnect between sort of what the ministry looks at or what school boards look at as a way to be able to define that and provide support and the way a, a doctor would look at sort of uh, diagnosing a disability. But the important part in that really is, you know, at the end of the day, and without sounding dismissive or, or flippant, the diagnosis is not the most important part. The really most important part is really figuring out what's the pathway to success for the child. And so, you know, much like we would ask for in terms of an adult, if an adult was working at a, at a place of employment, we wouldn't ask for the diagnosis of the adult, but we would ask the physician to be able to say, okay, what supports do I need to put in place in order to be able to ensure the success of the adult in the workplace? The same thing really would be, what do we need to do for a child in a school to help them be successful? That's great, great explanation. And so then what is the value of having a designation uh, of being a student with an exceptionality? Um, when is it really useful from your perspective as educators? What is it a specific tool you then use in certain situations or tell us a bit more? So, and I think that's a, a great question to be able to do that because again, it speaks to um, sort of, and I'll say sort of the categorization of um, looking for profiles. The, the challenge with, with trying to be able to say, you know, what, what does an identification of a learning disability provide? Um, I mean, we've seen, you know, significant difference between one student with a learning disability and another student with a learning disability. So really what we need is the actual specifics of, so what's the learning profile of the student in order to put in support? So I mean, we may have a child who has a learning disability who has an average IQ but has a deficit in the area of processing or an area in sort of the deficit maybe in the area of executive functioning or a combination of both or and both would require different types of supports so the actual kind of definition of a learning disability is helpful but it's not sort of what we actually need in order to be able to provide supports to be able to to, to ensure the child's success because one may benefit from having extra time the other extra time may not actually be an appropriate accommodation for the child where it may be teaching them sort of, you know, direct instruction on how to be able to organize sort of handing in assignments and those parts of that. So the, the part that we go back to in terms of then the overarching legislation would be that you, if the child was going to have a placement in a special education class, and that's a very, very small group of students because in the province of Ontario, really we would look at a regular class placement as the first option for all students in an inclusive model of education. But it really then would be about sort of about saying if you're going to actually have a placement in a class, there has to be an identification. So part of that is an identification and placement. So you couldn't have a placement without an identification. So there would be a requirement to actually have an identification, but it really is the program really where schools need support from the physician and the parents and the teachers and everyone working together to say, what does the program look like to be able to help them, right? So Great. again, I, I think that we get, we sometimes get tied up in the, the idea of 
looking for a diagnosis or looking for an identification. But the most important thing is how do we actually program effectively for the child and the identification, sometimes I think we get hung up on sort of that term and looking for that term when that term is probably not the most important part in ensuring the success of the student. Right. So I'm hearing that it's a lot about individualized and descriptive profiles for and making sure that there's then a match to what that child needs based on their function. Absolutely. Okay. So really physicians can do have a role in gathering some of that information to help put that profile and build that profile, it sounds like. Absolutely. Because we may have two students that struggle to read for two different reasons. We have probably students that struggle to read for a variety of different reasons. One, they might not have been exposed to literature or, or language uh, growing up. The other might be they, they may have difficulty in terms of associating sort of the, uh, the letter with the sound. There's a variety of reasons why they would get there. The most important part is the, the specificity of understanding why there's the issue so that we can then put in place the proper intervention to be able to do that. So again, two children may struggle with language in terms of development, but come at it for a variety of different reasons to be able to do there, to get there. And so then that's the most important thing we need a physician to be able to say is, okay, so what's underlying this so that we can put the supports in place to be able to make sure they're successful. Great, and I think that's a great segue then, Nikki, to talk a little bit more about the toolkit, because I think from reading it, it looks like a lot of the content in there is really geared to help physicians navigate that and provide some of those, provide them with tools to do that. So can you tell us more about the toolkit and, and how it should be used? Yes, so um, the toolkit is a free online list of resources. So it's available at ponda.ca under the documents uh, folder. And it, it basically pulls together a lot of information around how to understand literacy-based learning disabilities, um, what the current political climate is in Ontario, because of course that affects resources and um, sort of how special education is funded, what the curriculum legislation looks like. Um, it also has a variety of resources from different agencies and support groups like People for Education, uh, Learning Disabilities Association of Ontario, as well as some information about really well-researched evidence-based interventions that help kids who really struggle with that phonemic awareness, um, learning disability type of problem in their reading. Great. It sounds like there's it's a almost a one-stop shop to, to get started with some of this. I really try to develop it as a one-stop shop, and it's it's also got resources for families, for teachers, and for psychologists. So over time, it's been expanded, so that really has information for anybody who's seen a child who's struggling with their reading. Oh, that's great. So what are some examples of evidence-based interventions for literacy-based learning disabilities? The research is really clear, and there are a number of meta-analyses, um, consensus papers. There is a national reading panel in 2000 in the United States, and all of these uh, consensus and meta-analysis statements come up with the same conclusion, that a phonics-based approach using sequential structured instruction uh, with a direct, what's called a direct instruction approach is what works best 
for children with significant problems learning to read. It's not that all children need this. I think many children benefit from a phonics approach, for sure, but they don't all need that really intensive direct instruction approach. But if you're looking at a child who's really struggling, struggling with that phonemic awareness, um, that's the type of program with the direct instruction um, and that sequential structured um, provision of the phonics-based teaching that really helps them make gains. And it, and it doesn't matter if the child is an English language learner, if they have a low IQ, um, if, uh, you know, for a variety of different reasons they're struggling with their reading, they will all benefit from that type of program. Okay, great. And Chris, how do evidence-based programs become incorporated into schools? Great, and, and, and great questions. And I'll say that, I mean, if I, if I look at the, the, the concept of teachers, and I think all teachers absolutely want to do what's best for all kids, right? And so, I mean, no one would want to be able to, uh, and I'll say sort of waste time in doing work that actually doesn't see, you know, kids being successful. And so, you know, we look at, you know, different types of, of programs within schools and, and we're a board and our board specifically that really has supported direct instruction for really for students who've struggled to be able to break that code in reading. And so, you know, whether that's starting in kindergarten in terms of direct instruction, but really looking at how do we how do we identify kids and I'll use the word identifying not as a formal identification sort of context, but how do we how do we uh, see kids that are struggling in that and then start to be able to say, you know, uh, is just the exposure to a great deal of language in kindergarten. So we see being the, the two-year full-day kindergarten has seen wonderful um, uh, outcomes for students in terms of not only how they're doing at the end of kindergarten, but also how they're doing at the end of grade three. So, I mean, you know, hats off to um, some pretty progressive people that saw the value in investing in, in, in children early and putting them in, a, in an oral language-based play-based learning environment that we've seen a lot of kids who've, who've come in that may have had deficit in terms of not exposure to language that we've seen great growth during that time. So the, the curve of getting kids to sort of our first time of really doing a formal measurement on a provincial standard at grade three, the results have been really, there's quite, a, quite good research to be able to show that kids really actually have benefited a lot from early interventions and, and instruction. But there are, as, 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 as Nikki has said, there are a group of students that for whatever reason haven't been able to break that code in terms of understanding uh, 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 reading. And it's for those students that absolutely it's essential to be able to then say, how do we move into a direct, direct reading program that teaches them how to unlock that code in terms of reading? And so, you know, I think, you know, how, how do those become available? They become available by, by school boards making a commitment to be able to do that. And so, again, we're a school board that, that has committed to doing it. Um, and, and you know, as they say, that that's a program where you have to put in, you have to be able to say, how do we train the teachers to be able to how to do it? How do we pick the right program? Um, and how do we how do we have a sustainable model to be able to do that? Because quite often, direct reading instruction programs are kit based, and they're also teacher trained based. So it isn't about just training once; it's about onboarding new people all the time to be able to do that and make sure it's available. But then it's about then going into schools and saying. How do we prioritize that within a school to say that's an important part of an educator's day to be able to put time aside for a specific group of students that absolutely need that in order to be successful? Right. So many factors to be considered. I'm hearing sustainability, just even finding the right time and, and probably personnel as well as logistical factors to, to take into account as always. Absolutely. 
Um, so then, Chris, what can parents do if none of these interventions are available at their local school or in their region? Is there anything, any advice you'd give to parents? Great. So I'll always say the first point of contact for a parent is their classroom teacher. And so that's always the first person. And I think the person who knows who knows their child the best other than the parent, because the parent is really the best, the best knowledge of their child, has the best knowledge of their child. But the first point of contact is the classroom teacher and, and really sitting down with the classroom teacher and say, um, you know, how's my child doing? How do I know they're doing that process? You know, a regular communication to be able to do it. If they start to see that there are challenges, then starting to say, okay, they would work with the classroom teacher. And if they, if they, if they don't see sort of that, the programs that they believe sort of that their child needs, then the next step would be, okay, can they work with special education resource teacher in the school and the principal in the school and slowly work their way up in terms of um, being able to then advocate, you know, at the board level to be able to do that. So, I mean, all school boards have what's called a special education advisory committee. Um, and that really represents different uh, parent associations and community groups that sit on ours. And we have, um, and that meets monthly, so 10 times a year. And they really bring really the perspective of parents and community agencies to the board when developing special education plans. And so again, that they're the group that really then say, this is what I'm hearing across the county. Have you tried this? What's available in this part? And they bring that voice of really the voice of the community and the voice of different types of um, associations, including groups like you know, Learning Disabilities Association of Ontario, which mm -hmm. sits on ours and sits on most CX, that really bring that provincial perspective of what's available to be able to do that. So as I say, I think that would be one of the, one of the ways that really school boards would then look at that. And then their special education plan then gets reflected through that special advisory committee and then to the board, which really establishes the programs that are available within the board. That's great to hear about that advisory committee and that that's really a consistency across the province and resource. Nikki, what can physicians do if none of the evidence-based programs are available or seem to be available locally? Any advice for, for the, this group? So I think as physicians, when we're seeing an individual patient or student in our office and we see that they're really struggling with their phonological awareness, they're having problems learning to read, and, and sometimes this can really have an effect on their overall behavior, their emotional um, wellness, and I think to assist them in dealing with those issues, one of the things we can do is advocate for an appropriate intervention in school. Um, I think the Simcoe County District School Board has done a great job at having early screening and uh, evidence-based interventions for kids with these problems, but not all school boards have these resources. And I think the toolkit has provided some um, uh, letters that physicians can use as a basis to write their own letter whether it's to uh, a principal, whether it's to um, uh, a superintendent of special education, uh, to advocate for these types of evidence-based interventions. Okay, so there's some real practical resources that I could use as a physician in the toolkit. Good. Absolutely. Okay, great. Um, and I'll direct a question uh, to both of you. So parents often ask when they're in the office you, you know, about online or other options. How do we judge as physicians or educators um, to help parents look for valuable resources? What are, are there some common principles you can coach us on? Great. 
So, I mean, if I can jump in in that part and talk about, so the journey of the journey as a parent of supporting a child with LD is a long journey, and I think that's an important part in terms of the partnership, the partnership with school and the partnership with their with their physician and the partnership with their child. I think is important to be able to understand this is not a a quick journey that's going to be fixed in sort of two years. And if and if there is a deficit, you know, whether it's a processing deficit or whether it's a short-term memory deficit. I mean, there are things that they're gonna that they're gonna help their child forever, and so you know, one is then understanding some of the things that may come with that, and that might come with sort of a pretty standard with a child with LD is is also school-based anxiety, right? And so you know, the child is well aware that they they intellectually and cognitively understand the material, but for whatever reason can't demonstrate it. So you know, as we talk about a parent, you know, one of the things that that really can you know do is in terms of the support in helping their child understand. How to be successful and so you know if we're looking at a child that struggles with um, sort of time constraints how do we provide opportunities at home to be able to also have you know time that's that's uh, for repetition at home to be able to allow time to be able to process the information if the child struggles with things like executive functioning and they struggle with the organization of skills and skills work or schools work on this it's a pretty structured model of, of that process how do we then, you know, provide space for our children at home also to be able to, you know, is there a place for them to be able to do work that's a clear, uncluttered place? So whether that's a, a desk that we take everything off the the um, off the table and just focus on the one part of it. So understanding their child learning profile and then working as a partner with that profile for the whole time that their child is in school. So this isn't going to end at grade two and grade three and miraculously they wake up and the learning-based difficulty is going to go away at grade three. These are supports that they're going to have to work with really for the, the entire time. And a big part of that is the partnership that they need to develop in that. So, and again, that's understanding some of the things that are available, but then looking at, well, you know, what does it mean to work together with a school? What does it mean to work together with a physician to be able to say that it's not an adversarial relationship? And that doesn't mean not holding schools. Again, it's a double negative. I probably shouldn't use that in education. <laughs> Um, but it, you know, in terms of, I mean, it, it's important to hold schools accountable for what's, what, what they need to have in place for the child. But it's about figuring out, so what does that look like, and what does that partnership look like? Because the partnership's going to need to be strong in order for the child to be successful. Right. So about building that team that's in there for the long haul, the journey as well. Right. 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 Um, Nikki, any comments uh, on that as well from a physician perspective? Well, I absolutely think. This is a, collabor a collaboration with educators. Uh, you know, although uh, sometimes I may come across as um, being a little bit adversarial and wanting to hold schools to account, I truly believe in collaborative work with schools, understanding each other's perspective, and uh, really working as a team. Getting to know the educators in your community as a physician goes a very long way towards assisting your patient and, and the school student. Um, yeah, so I can't, I can't stress that enough. It's really a collaboration. Great. I'm going to push a little bit here. And so, so we talked a bit about um, that not all school boards have the same resources and things differ across the province. So, Chris, maybe you can help us understand why these resources or why these interventions can't be standard across the province. Why can't it be something that be, is legislated and, and put in place? Great. So, and it goes back to my, my original part in terms of that, um, that across the province, really, education is organized 
really by legislation and regulation provincially, provincial-wise. But school boards then become really their their own their own corporation, and so then we get into priorities as to what is the school board prioritizing to be able to do that, and then it goes down to again what are schools prioritizing to be able to do that, and 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 part of me says that's you know good, and part of me says that's bad in terms of that process, but a big part of supporting students with 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 learning disabilities really is about individualization. So it is about balancing. How do we balance standardization with the individualization, the professional judgment of the educator to be able to do that? So the part that really is standard is curriculum. The part that really on how do we implement curriculum becomes really a part in terms of it becomes individualized. And that's a that's an incredible balance that I think school boards need to be able to find all the time. Um, I, you know, I will say that you know, as we've looked at, you know, uh, really going down the road of a standardized program to support students who have struggled with um, uh, understanding learning to read, we are a board that, that has done that and seen great success. Other boards have, have made different priorities in terms of how do they, how do they, ex how do they uh, meet the needs of those students. So, I mean, it really is not a one-size-fits-all model to be able to do that. And I guess if I was a, uh, an educator in Thunder Bay versus an educator in Windsor, I might say that that we do need to have different options available because, you know, we, you know, we, and and I guess some, you know, parents may argue with me: a child is a child is a child, regardless of where they are. But I do think that we do need to individualize programs to meet the local priorities and local needs of uh, of the students that we see every day in the communities that we work in. So, as I say, fundamental to having kids be successful at school is learning to read, and you know, and there are principles about. You know, learning to read early and often is is a wonderful predictor of success, um, but how we get to that part is different in, in in every school. So, as they say, we have standardized it in our in our board, but it's hard for me to speak for other boards in terms of the priorities that they've set. Right, and I guess that's part of what we're doing here is is having the conversation so people can be thinking about it in different regions and take models that are happening in one part of the province and and maybe start a conversation in another part of the province as well. Absolutely. Um, Nikki, to some, learning disabilities really are about education and are best managed in the education system. Just as we move towards the end here, why is this an issue that physicians really should be taking on? Um, well, I don't think physicians actually choose to take it on. These are the patients that are coming to us. Uh, so parents bring their child to their doctor for all kinds of reasons. Um, and it may be they're really wondering why their child is struggling in school. Is there a medical problem? And, and there are many medical issues that need to be ruled out, things like uh, vision, hearing, uh, maybe the child's in pain for some reason, maybe they have an anxiety disorder, maybe they have a global developmental delay or a mental health condition like um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And these are all things that physicians can help with. With. But at the, at the end of the day, uh, around 10% of children are going to have a language-based learning disability, and uh, physicians have a hard time diagnosing that and intervening, but we're seeing them in our office anyway. And so I think having an approach to understanding these, these individuals and how to assist them, how to advocate for for them beyond just saying you need a psychological assessment, which I think is a bit of a knee-jerk reaction that physicians often make, and I've certainly been guilty of doing that myself. But as, as Chris has said, 
the treatment for difficulty learning is not more assessment. There may be a time when there's necessary, but the treatment is really a good educational approach to assist with the areas that are problematic for that child. And I think physicians really need to be giving that message to families and sending sending their reports to families so that it can be shared with the school to say, look, we've ruled out all the medical issues. We're managing the, what we call comorbidities, co-occurring conditions. Um, this child is still really struggling with the reading. Okay, over to you, educator. This is where you can um, use your uh, tiered approach and maybe step up what you're doing in terms of addressing the, the needs of this student. Great, and I think that's really fair that uh, you know these children are coming into the office and it takes that first step to do that big overview um, that we have the privilege of, of doing as physicians and pediatricians. That's a, that's a great summary. And so um, I guess as we look to wrap up here, Chris, any uh, last remarks or, or really take-home points that you want to make? Yep. And I, and I think, I mean, I'll, I'll go back to saying sort of uh, the, the the family that comes into the office, in the physician's office, is the same family that comes to the school. And they're all the same child. And so, you know, at the end of the day, we all need to work together and develop, you know, what strategies need to be in place in order to support kids at school and in the community. Um, and teaching kids to read is probably the most important thing we can teach kids to be able to do. You know, in, in today's context of, of the importance of mathematics, some people would argue with me in terms of that too. But I would say, you know, the, the, the biggest predictor of kids' success really in terms of developing independence and developing self-esteem really is the successful way to be able to, um, uh, to, be able to figure out a pathway. The part of that, and, and it, it might be a, t- a wonderful thing for another discussion, is, is sort of the use of assistive technology and what role does technology play in terms of being able to do that. Um, and, and again, that's a whole time for a whole nother conversation to be able to do that. And there are pros and cons to that too, right? But, uh, but I think the most important thing is, I think we first need to make sure that we've given the child all the tools to be able to learn to read really before we get into sort of an accommodation strategy of assistive technology. And that doesn't mean I don't support technology, but I do think we need to make sure that we have done our best to be able to teach a child to be able to read, because I think there's probably nothing that's more important to a child in terms of their success going forward. Absolutely, a real essential life life skill for the long term. Wonderful. Well, thank you both for joining me today. And this concludes our podcast series on uh, approach to literacy-based learning disabilities. If you're interested in learning more about PONDA or accessing the toolkit, please visit the PONDA website at www.ponda.ca. Thanks again.